came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes get different views, I get confused. Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. And today is Sunday, the 16th of August, 2020. And in each month, we bring you two fabulous episodes for your listening pleasure on SoundCloud, iTunes and Spotify. One episode features Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave, who gives us his monthly sky guide for observers, accompanied by his fascinating astronomical tangent. And the other episode is a feature interview with a respected astronomer, astrophysicist, space scientist, or particle physicist. We also include a community service announcement, asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively, and isolate as much as possible as we work our way through this COVID-19 crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. So right now, we'll hear from Ian Astroblog Musgrave over in Adelaide, followed by his astronomical tangent. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be speaking with you again. And fantastic to be speaking with you again, too. Can you tell us, Ian, what's up in the sky for the next month? Okay, I'll remind our listeners that uh, our monthly sky guide runs from the middle of the month to the next middle of the month, so it's going from August the 16th. So when I say what's happening this month, it actually is uh, encompassing the end of one month and the start of another month. Yep. So this month, most of our actions in the evening skies. The morning skies got some good views. And we've got Ceres in opposition. This is not quite as exciting as Jupiter, Saturn or Mars being in opposition, but it's still quite interesting. So let's start with what's happening with the Moon. So the new Moon is on the 19th. The Moon is at perigee on the 21st, that is when it's closest to Earth. First quarter is on the 26th. The full Moon is on September the 2nd. And the Moon is at apogee on September the 6th. Then we have the last quarter on September the 10th. So that gives you an idea of when the skies will be the darkest and give you a, a good opportunity to go out and look at some of the clusters and constellations when they're at their finest. Now, having said that, let's talk about what's happening with the planets. And as usual, we'll start off with the evening skies. So what's happening in the eastern sky and now towards the northeastern sky is... Jupiter and Saturn are dominating the skies. Now you walk out into your backyard, 
look around, and the two brightest objects you see at the moment are Jupiter, aside from the moon, of course, are Jupiter and Saturn. They're very obvious, they're close together, they're looking spectacular. Yep. Now, both of them are past opposition, but they're still bright. Of course, if, if you have a um, small telescope, even in small telescopes now that, even though it's just past opposition, uh, Jupiter's still looking very bright. You can easily see the bands, you can easily see the dance of the moons, and Saturn, you can easily see the rings. They're just absolutely beautiful. I'm still processing some images I took with my telescope a couple of weeks ago when I last had clear skies, but you can be assured that Jupiter and Saturn will look very beautiful whether you're looking at your unaided eye in binoculars or in small telescopes. Now, of course, the patterns that you see in the sky of the planets are also made beautiful when the moon visits them. So on August the 28th, you've got a lovely lineup of the moon, Jupiter and Saturn. On the 29th, the moon is between Jupiter and Saturn, making a very nice triangle. And then on the 30th, you've got Jupiter, Saturn and the moon. So you've got some nice little patterns happening there. Now, Mars is readily visible in the evening sky before midnight. And also there's very few bright stars next to Mars, so it's very distinctive. So if you're looking late in the evening, looking east, bright, red, ruddy Mars will be glowing horizon, and a pair of Jupiter Saturn will be in your. Later on, on September the 9th, the uh, waning moon is close to Mars, so if you are not uh, really certain what, uh, that, what that bright red uh, object is above the horizon late in the evening, on September the 9th, the moon will be close to Mars. That will make some excellent views. Mars is in opposition in October, and it's going to be one of the best oppositions. So I'm just letting you know ahead of time that uh, if you spend some time with your telescope aimed on Mars over the next uh, month uh, and coming months, you'll see Mars swell in size and see far more details. That'll be really, really nice. Now, the other um, thing that's happening in, in the evening sky is the asteroid series comes to opposition. And this is on August the 20th, 28th. So uh, it's not astoundingly bright, it's only magnitude 7.7, uh, but it's well within reach of uh, decent binoculars. Now, see, finding series is a little bit tricky. <laughs> so if you um, face east at 90 minutes after sunset, this is actually the twilight, you can see the bright star following, which is the uh, brightest star in the constellation of Sinister Strinus, that's the southern fish. And if you have your binoculars and you sweep down from Pomaloot by about two binocular fields, you find in your view three brightish stars that are, uh, are part of the end of the constellation of Aquarius. If you want their names, they go by the exciting names of 86, 89 and 88 Aquarii. And if you move your binoculars up a little bit, in that field there, one of the objects in that field, is Ceres. If you watch it over the next few nights, you'll see a Ceres move from night to night. Yep. So that's most of what's happening in the evening sky. Now, what about twilight? Now, from the beginning of September, Mercury in the evening sky, 60 minutes after sunset, the sky is beginning to get decently dark and be able to see Mercury quite nicely now. So if you're watching night after night, you'll see Mercury climbing out of the twilight, heading towards the brightest star, Spiga. Very good time to observe this planet. And towards the end of our observing period, that's the 16th of September, 
Mercury's quite high, 60 minutes after sunset, very obvious, looking very nicely bright, and you should be able to uh, discern it's this a small amateur telescope. So that's quite nice. This is the best time to see Mercury this year in the evening. For those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, it's never going to get very high in the Northern Hemisphere, but it's still reasonably uh, okay to see in the twilight. Now let's move to the morning skies. There's four bright planets. Jupiter and Saturn are sinking lower by the day, and so you won't get to see this for very long before uh, Jupiter sinks below the horizon before Venus rises. So by mid-September, there'll only be three bright planets in the morning sky. But it will be still very nice. Very good. Yeah. Now, Venus is in Gemini. It's below Orion. So if you're getting up and looking at the sky, at the moment, you'll see the obvious constellation of Orion, the Hunter. Venus is below Orion. And over the weeks, it's going to move away from Orion. And um, what's interesting is that it's coming closer to uh, the constellation of Cancer and the nearby cluster. Now, by the um, September the 13th and 14th, you'll see Venus within a binocular range of the nearby cluster. And the, the, you'll be able to see this about 60 minutes before sunrise. You won't be able to see the beehive cluster with the unaided eye, really, but with the pair of binoculars, be able to see the beehive cluster and Venus posted. So that, that'll look very nice. Now, of course, I have to mention the dance of Venus and the Moon. Around about the time this podcast would go out, August the 16th, Venus and the Crescent Moon are close. On September the 14th, Venus and the Crescent Moon are close again. So the period of this podcast starts with Venus and the Crescent Moon close and ends with Venus and the Crescent Moon close. So at this time, Venus starts a distinct half-moon shape in a, in a small, small telescope, where the other side of this is half-moon shape. If you've got really strong binoculars, you might be able to pick this out, but it, it's, it will be very hard to see because reflections in the binoculars from the bright Venus make this shape hard to see. By the end of this monthly period, Venus is going to be a gibbous moon shape. And will have also shrunk somewhat, so you'll be able to, in a small telescope, follow the uh, Venus going through its phases and shrinking, which is you know, very interesting. Uh, not to mention its beautiful display of the unaided eye. You're following the telescope, following the phases of uh, Venus very nice. So that's the morning sky. The morning skies will be very nice. Very good. So step outside and look up and... Do you have a tangent for us for this episode, Ian? I do indeed have a tangent for us, Ceres. So, Ceres comes to opposition on the 28th, and it's biggest of price to see for Earth, but even in uh, the biggest amateur telescopes, it'll just be a bright dot. Well, not really a bright bottom. Less bright than lots of other stars, more bright than uh, most other stars. Now, Ceres is the largest asteroid, but it's not the brightest asteroid. The brightest asteroid and we'll be and, uh, this year it's not going to be an AI bright, it's going to be very bright later on. But Ceres contains about one third of the entire mass of the asteroid belt. It was first discovered in 1801, and for about 60 years was considered to be a planet, and that it was promoted in 1860. 
to uh, also to being a asteroid, and the word asteroid means star-like, because even though even if the uh, best best telescope series was just a bright dot, and all the other uh, asteroids that we saw were bright dots too, by 1860 it was very clear that Ceres was the largest of a pile of solar system rubble that lay between Mars and Jupiter. Just like many years later, we realised that uh, Pluto was the largest of a bunch of icy rubble that lies outside the orbit of uh, Neptune. So Ceres remained just an asteroid for many years until during the Pluto Wars, it was reclassified as a dwarf planet uh, along with uh, Pluto, uh, Sedna, and a bunch of others, uh, and it's the only dwarf planet in the inner solar system. So Ceres is, it went from being special to being the proposed uh, fifth planet to being a bit of um, a bit of uh, rocky junk, and it's gone now as being the special again, being the only rocky dwarf planet in the inner solar system. But what uh, sparked the, uh, this tangent was the fact that seven big papers on Ceres were published in the journal Nature, and summarising the science from the extended Dawn mission. Now, if you remember Dawn, uh, it was the iron thruster-powered uh, spacecraft that visited first Vesta, and uh, with, uh, with, uh, the dramatic images of the scars and grooves from the dramatic collision which turned Vesta into a space potato, and then finally coming to Ceres. Now, we sort of imagine Ceres to be a dead world, cold and cratered, not particularly exciting. And surprisingly, even though we saw the long-standing craters that you'd expect on, uh, on that, that world, and from what we uh, saw uh, close encounters with smaller asteroids, it turned out to be far more than a dead world. There was a mysterious lone mountain that rose some uh, 6,000 and a bit metres above the surface, uh, landslides and dazzling white spots. And, and in the midst of all this was uh, Ocator Crater, which had this amazing white spot and a central mound, in this, uh, which suggested that the world was uh, at least once geologically active. In the, in, the, in the recent past, and possibly even still now, geologically active. So our world has been uh, rewritten. So uh, in the extended uh, uh, mission, uh, Dawn, uh, as it was running out of fuel, came closer and closer to Ceres uh, and then was able to map these, uh, these interesting features from a distance of about 35 miles. Uh, which made it for some good um, studies of the gravity uh, and structure of the planet and get, get really good spectra of the materials that were in the bright spots. Now, all this started together suggests that Ceres is a relic ocean with a subsurface brine ocean. Uh, now, this brine ocean may not necessarily be underneath all of Ceres, but it's very extensive under Octopore Crater. Now, um, Octopore Crater itself is relatively recent, and by that we would uh, mean about 22 million years ago. But the surprising thing is that the central mound uh, of Octopore Crater, that really that bright mound, is, uh, and that brightness is all salt deposits. 
uh, actually is quite recent and it's probably only started to to be produced about five million years ago. So long after the initial uh, impact and long after all the heat from that impact dissipated, um, it, uh, something started a cryovolcano in the centre of Ockport, uh, which left um, a wide range of salts on the surface. Now, the mound in the centre of uh, Ockport is uh, called Zerelia Tholus. I don't want to pronounce that properly. Uh, and it's covered in a whole range of, uh, of salts. So um, it's got sodium carbonate, but also a version of sodium chloride called hydrohalite, which is hydrate. And it's right on top. So this is the first time we've ever found hydrohalite anywhere except Earth. And, but the, and so, oh, great, we've found watery salt. Yay! But it's not stable in certain series. So within 100 years, it could, uh, it would have gone from being hydrohalite to ordinary sodium chloride. Uh, and it could even be faster. So we know that at least 100 years ago, probably even uh, sooner. So what this suggests, and uh, looking at some of the other bright spots of the series, is that the brightest heaps are still occurring. And so it may not be a relic after all, but it's still a dynamic one. One other clue to this is that the before uh, Dawn Wide series, the Herschel Telescope had spotted uh, a plume of water vapor in the series. So it's possible that cryovolcanoes are still active on the series, not as, uh, as active, of course, as the cryovolcanoes on Enceladus, but um, very definitely uh, it's entirely possible that we still have uh, cryovolcano activity. Uh, shooting plumes of water into, into uh, space and depositing salt. And so uh, Ceres has gone from being that being imagined a, a cold, dead lump of rock to being something that it once had a subsurface ocean to being something that still has a subsurface ocean. And even if it's not a global subsurface ocean, it's extensive enough that it still feeds things like Ockertal Crater and other craters Around Syria. Uh, and of course, the, what comes to people's minds immediately if you have a world of water, could there be life? Maybe. Well, conditions are pretty inimical to life there today. I mean, you, the subsurface ocean is probably a very salty brine, which would discourage most things except the brine loving bacteria we have on Earth. Uh, the main issue there is the lack of energy for metabolism. So unless there are some sort of hydrothermal uh, processes that we don't quite recognise, there's not really any good way for living organisms to get energy to survive in the uh, brines. But in the past, maybe. Obviously, the, the subsurface ocean would have been warmer and more conducive to life earlier on. Uh, in the history of series, and uh, it would be very interesting to see what uh, future missions may hold when they investigate this world. And so that's, that's my tangent, is uh, this series. So when you look at all the series in your binoculars in uh, the August the 28th, uh, you're looking not just at a star-like dot, but at a world that was uh, active at the, at the least only a, a few centuries ago, about 
roughly about the time uh, when uh, the Great Depression on Earth was occurring. Fire volcanoes were active on Ceres, and they may be still active even today. So you're looking at a world that is far from dead and is a, a lot more interesting than we imagined even a few, even a few years ago. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astro Blog Musgrave. Thank you, Brendan, for giving me the opportunity to speak in the, on uh, the sky and the interesting things in it. Take care, Ian. You too, mate. Cheers. Bye. Bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com. And another great Astro podcast is The Scientists with Kirsten Banks and Dr. Ankel Lopez Sanchez. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astro Blogger website. Till then, isolate, take care, look after yourself and your loved ones. And please, do wear a mask when you can't socially distance yourself. Radio Wave!